I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, May 12th, 2011. My first day back in the saddle. Needed to take a couple days off, tend to a family matter. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is a lot of crazy stuff being said, and uh, over and again, uh, the the culprit that is... uh, to blame, well, first and foremost, is man's sinful nature. When we think of uh, humanity as being sinful by nature, this is what God's Word tells us about ourselves. Um, and and because God's Word reveals this about us, this is truly our problem. And so what happens is, is that our sinful nature manifests sinfulness you know, in many different ways. But every single breaking of God's commandment always comes back to the first commandment, "'You shall have no other gods before me.'" And so, because that's the case, um, man, because he's sinful by nature, doesn't want to believe the truth by nature, instead prefers lies. And as a result of it, when it approaches God's word uh, in an unbridled, undisciplined fashion, it, it runs amok and begins to take things out of context and fashion for itself idols, uh, false deities and false gods that are basically fashioned with out-of-context verses, out-of-context words, false doctrines and false teachings that are arrived at via uh, dubious hermeneutical methods, and uh, and that's being kind and generous. So what we do here on this program, we do a politically incorrect thing that, that might irritate some of you. And I know that there are listeners out there who, uh, you know, that you're listening to the program and you're irritated by what I say, and at the same time, 
um, that irritation has driven you farther into the Scriptures. Trust me when I say I'm not trying to irritate you just for the sake of irritation. What I'm trying to do is wake you up. This is a program that is like a cold bucket of ice water designed to wake you from your sleep, if you would, and uh, make, make you realize that what you're being told from your pulpit, and it may be the pulpit from the church that you're going to, um, isn't the truth. What you're being fed are lies. You, it, to use a magical way of putting it, you, we can say that a, 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 an evil witch has cast a spell upon you to believe a lie as if it is the truth. Now, you're thinking, what are you talking about? Yeah, I recently uh, uh, re-listened to, I, one of the things I love doing is uh, I listen to audiobooks. Uh, it helps, you know, you know, I'm one of these guys that um, sometimes I have the time to sit down and read, and sometimes I don't have the time to sit down and read, but I want to keep reading. And, uh, and so one of the most useful um, uh, tools that I, have, that I have found on the Internet is a, a website called audible.com, audible.com. And many of the books that are available in print, in both classics as well as recent releases, are available as, as an audiobook that you can download on your iPod. And, it's, and, and so this is one of the ways that I keep up with things. But I recently re-listened to uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The... Um, the Silver Chair. Now, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, the first three are probably the most well-known stories. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and The Voyage of the John Treader. Uh, from about book four on, it's questionable as to whether or not people have read them. But probably one of the most singular, definitive uh, books ever written on the nature of spiritual deception is the fourth book in the series entitled The Silver Chair. And uh, it's, it's an interesting story because you have a, uh, an evil witch who takes on the form of a serpent, notice the biblical uh, <clears throat> symbols there, and convinces uh, a young prince uh, you know, that, uh, that good is bad and bad is good. In fact, this evil uh, serpent uh, is guilt was actually uh, murdered this prince's mother and and is able to cast a spell in such a way that this prince actually thinks that this uh, witch is is uh, is a beautiful lady who has his best in mind and the, the and nothing could be further from the truth and so if you really want to if you want to get a, a good children's story and it's more than that C.S. Lewis's books are written on so many different levels but if you want a good story that uh, that really strips away and looks at the the, the machinations, the uh, the strategies, and the way in which evil works, in which Satan, our adversary, works. Now, remember, the Bible says so clearly that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is really against Satan, that great deceiver, and we're t- we're admonished over and again through uh, Jesus's own words, through the writings of the apostles, as well in in the letters that they've written, to resist the devil and his schemes, to resist him strong in our faith, to extinguish the fiery darts of our enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a lying a lion, <laughs> lying. Yeah, that that's <clears throat> that's an interesting slip, but yeah, he prowls around like a lion, seeking to destroy whom he would destroy. And uh, and Christian, understand this, that uh, the day in which you were brought to repentance and faith in Christ, uh, set free from the power of sin, death, and the devil, that that was the day that uh, you were put into an army in a, in a battle that's bigger than all of us. 
And what I mean by that is is that we are all soldiers as Christians. And if you don't understand that you're a soldier, that you're in a battle, you become a casualty. But our battle is not against, ultimately, when you think about it, our battle isn't against Ryan McLaren, the emergent church, these heretics that we uh, frequently uh, talk about here on Fighting for the Faith. Our Ultimately, our battle is against the satanic deception that has crept into the church through these agents. And so the solution is to stand firm in our faith. And our faith is, is, is firmly grounded in and rests upon and abides in the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And the weapons we have are common, ordinary, and despised, if you would. We have God's word. We have water in the form of baptism. We have bread and wine. Uh, you know, the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Jesus Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And to any outside rationalist, uh, rationalistic 21st century postmodern person, these things don't seem like they have any power at all. Do you seriously? Uh, you got, you got, let me see if I got this straight. You got, you got a book. Yep, we got a book. You have um, ordinary tap water. Yep, we got ordinary tap water. We, you have bread and wine. Yep. And you're going to defeat the devil with these things. Well, actually, the devil's already been defeated, and these are the weapons that by which God's kingdom is advanced. Water, word, bread, and wine. These are the things that we have to hang on to, and there are promises attached to all of them, gospel promises attached to every one of them. And the reason why they're so powerful is because the one who attached his promises to these things is the one who who created the world and the universe in six days by speaking it into existence. These, you know, God's word is attached to these things. And so this is how we, these are the weapons of our warfare. And so we don't battle against human beings. We battle against the devil who has deceived these human beings and duped them into being his agents, his children, his slaves, to do his bidding, his work, and to spread his lies. And we stop those lies by speaking the truth of God's word. We speak those lies by confessing our sins and being forgiven of our sins by Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross, which comes to us in the waters of our baptism, which comes to us in the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Christ shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins, and daily we take up our cross and we follow him. So here on this program, uh, this is the work of discernment work, of comparing what people are saying in the name of God, knowing that the great deceiver that is out there, Satan, that that's his goal, is to deceive people. And, you know, and so we're going to undeceive people by opening up the scriptures and doing the work and looking at the truth, because Jesus is the truth. His word is truth. We are sanctified by the truth, and the truth is God's word. So that's the idea here. It's politically incorrect. It ruffles feathers. And at the same time, if you don't agree with the things that I'm bringing forth, if you disagree with my assessment of what somebody is saying in the name of God to the Word of God, well, by all means, open up your Bible and show me from the clear teaching of God's Word that what I'm saying is not true. Because God's Word is truth, and even I, even I get to have what I say compared to God's Word. Nobody is exempt, not even me, Chris Rosebro. Anyway, glad I got that off my chest. You know what I might be doing? Um, I don't know if I'll do it tomorrow, but in the in in a re, in an upcoming episode of Fighting for the Faith, I'll play for you a portion of the audio book uh, from uh, the Silver Chair because 
um, there's a section in there where uh, the, uh, the this satanic witchy person uh, tries to cast a spell upon uh, the, uh, the 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 good guys in the uh, in the book, and it's it's it, I mean, talk about them, you know, just a fascinating way of uh, of uncovering how satan deceives i mean it's it's beautiful it was written long before the emergent church and it's so funny it's uh, <clears throat> similar to what we hear in the emergent church and what they do all right let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of fighting for the faith i'm going to start off with a little bit of email um now i took a couple of days off tending to a family matter i uh, don't want to get into details about that but uh, uh let's just say that you know not quite done tending to my family matter. So as a result of it, you know, if I, if I sound a little distracted, not quite myself, well, let's just say that I'm I'm a little distracted and not quite myself. So uh, your prayers are much appreciated. So, um, But what we're going to do today, I got an email. I got uh, two emails I'm going to read from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, which I think are worth passing along. I'll probably uh, uh, share another one of his emails uh, either tomorrow or early next week, because uh, he, Pastor Charman, when he starts writing, he gets on a roll. But uh, all of these are worth passing along to you. Um, I've got uh, audio from a video uh, entitled "Shallow Small Group," and it's supposed to be a parody video that uh, kind of explains the problem with I, the idea of a shallow small group. But this is one of those ones. It was passed along by Ed Stetzer on his blog, and Ed Stetzer's the guy who's out there. Uh, promoting the the new missional manifesto and you know the whole idea behind the missional manifesto, I think it's a complete waste of time. Um, it's like trying to reinvent the wheel um, to recreate fire um, and kind of say that you've invented a new recipe for fire that's even better than the fire recipe that God created. It just doesn't make any sense. And so I think this uh, this uh, this uh, shallow small group parody video, um, although it's it you know it it's rightfully going after. Uh, some of the problems in the whole small group movement. At the same time, the solutions you know that it, it seems to imply in its video don't really sound like biblical solutions to me. I'll explain what I mean when we get there. Um, got a CNN report on Project Caravan. Here it is the 12th of May, and uh, we've got less than 10 days uh, before uh, the, the May 21st deadline for Jesus' return, according to Harold Camping, you know, to... And uh, and so what I thought was interesting is that CNN put together a video uh, talking about Project Caravan. Now, on a previous installment of Fighting for the Faith, I had mentioned the fact that um, that uh, there there are caravans of recreation vehicles, RVs, you know, touring the country, and they're they're all wrapped. Um, and they're wrapped, you know, that you know, announcing the uh, the May twenty first uh, rapture of the church. And uh, and what I thought was interesting is that CNN, in, in their reporting of this, they didn't have a narrator. Uh, there was no person who actually spoke explaining what they were doing. The, the, the explanation was given in the words in the video itself, and then you were listening in and kind of following these people in, in, you know, in their day, in their life, as they caravan around the country to announce the, uh, the rapture of the church on the 21st. Unfortunately, um, they're dead wrong. Um, and as a result of it, uh, the, the, they're they're heading toward basically they're they're driving at Mach five towards a cliff, and they're going to crash. They're going to crash. May twenty second is going to happen. Um, and uh, let, let's just say that uh, they are they are in for a world of hurt and disillusionment. And so we want to be able to reach out to these folks in love and kindness, and show them the truth. Show them the truth of Scripture and the biblical gospel and where they got off track, and we'll talk about that today. Um, 
I got an Al Mohler piece I want to read on following Jesus while rejecting the Bible. The uh, Presbyterian Church USA has finally successfully, uh, successfully, as if this is a, something to uh, be happy about, it, it, not at all, uh, have voted to ordain gay clergy. And, um, and so Al Mohler has a great piece talking about this entitled Following Jesus While Rejecting the Bible. And uh, which I think is the right take on it. And then I got a Patricia King video that um, entitled Watch What You Say. And uh, this is going to – I'm going to be using this video for the occasion of demonstrating one of the, one of the primary, primary uh, rules of biblical interpretation that's beyond the whole context, context, context thing. Uh, remember, our three rules for biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. However, that, those are not the only rules when it comes to interpreting the Bible. There's another really, really important, important set, uh, rule when it comes to uh, in, uh, understanding God's Word, and that is is that clear passages govern unclear passages, and that and the idea there is is that God's Word actually interprets God's Word for us. And so, when you come to a passage that is a little bit difficult to understand, even when you put it back in context, you see sitting there going, I'm not sure if I know exactly what this passage means, then you, you, then you apply this passage, uh, th- this uh, hermeneutical principle, that Scripture interprets Scripture. And then what you do is you find other passages that deal with a topic in order to cast light on how to properly understand that verse so that you can understand, you know, because here's the deal. God's Word talks about the same things over and again using different words, using different metaphors, using different examples, and in different ways so that we can understand what's being taught. And uh, Patricia King's mishandling of a particular uh, verse from the book of Proverbs gives us a fine uh, example on how to apply this other rule. Scripture interprets Scripture. Use clear passages to govern unclear. And then uh, today, what what we're going to do then for our sermon review, got to take a little bit of a break from the awful, horrible sermons that were uh, highlighted during our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. By the way, uh, if you haven't voted on that, yeah, in, yeah, it, the voting is still open uh, through the end of uh, this week uh, all the way to Sunday of uh, this weekend. So if you haven't uh, cast your vote, please do. Um, I, <laughs> this year's offering was particularly bad. So anyway, uh, don't want to miss you know don't want to have uh, you miss your opportunity to vote on who you think should uh, gain the ti- you know this the, the title of uh, the the person who, the pastor who preached the worst Easter sermon of 2011. I, it's worth passing along. So all right, let's uh, let's dive into the program proper. And um, by the way, did I mention Pastor Charmley? Yeah, we're going to be reviewing a Pastor Charmley sermon. I didn't even get to my own point. Anyway, talking about Pastor Charmley, got an email here from across the pond from the pastor who has four names, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. And what's really funny is is that this first email, <laughs> just like I, can, I have a hard time picturing Pastor Charmley typing at this speed and kind of, you know, having this kind of air to him while he's typing. He says something in this email that I have a hard time Equally hard time actually envisioning. You'll see what I'm saying. Pastor Charlie writes, he says, Dear Chris, I have just listened to the first entry in the worst Easter sermon of 2011 contest, and I find that I am hoping that it is the worst. Otherwise, I may be in danger of a stroke. Uh, Pardon the pun here, Pastor Charlie, but uh, we don't want to have you have a stroke at Stoke-on-Trent. We don't want a stroke on Trent. Anyway, that was my bad attempt at humor. 
It was punny, I'm sure. Anyway, Pastor Charlie continues, and here's what he says. He says, that was one of the worst excuses for a sermon that I have ever heard. He's talking about uh, Chris Songson's Easter, quote, sermon. He says, so bad, in fact, was that sermon that I hope the neighbors were out. Otherwise, they might have serious questions as to why I was yelling goats and monkeys every so often. I, I find that it relieves stress. <laughs> Okay, um, Pastor Charm, <laughs> I, I, uh, no, I cannot in my mind having video chatted with you on Skype, and uh, and 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 having you be a regular person who corresponds here at Fighting for the Faith, and having reviewed your sermons here at Fighting for the for- Faith, I am having a really truly difficult time picturing you yelling. Goats and monkeys as a stress relieving technique. I'm just, <laughs> I can't picture it. But uh, since, I mean, you're confessing this to me, I, I, I must admit, I have to confess that that's what you're saying. So there it is. It, that, that, if, for those of you wanting to know how Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley relieves stress in his life, he does so by occasionally yelling out goats and monkeys. <laughs> <clears throat> Let me continue with the with the email, though. It, it gets better. He says, It happens that I have recently been reading some volumes from the second decade of the 20th century that deal with psychology in places, and, and all I can say is that these modern people are committing all sorts of nonsense. I mean this. Leslie Weatherhead seriously studied psychology before writing, quote, Prescription for Anxiety in the 1950s. These people sound like they've written their sermons after watching a few popular-level programs on the subject. When A.T. Guttery wrote his book on uh, conversion in 1920, he read a whole load of books on psychology and religious experience. That is missing in these sermons. I'd far rather listen to Leslie Weatherhead, who was a self-confessed liberal. Why? Weatherhead knew what he was talking about, and also actually tried to be a pastor. Second email. Further uh, uh, to your comments on the term missional, Pastor Charmley's uh, going to co- co- you know, add something further to what I said regarding the term missional. He says, We use many non-biblical words and phrases in theology to express biblical concepts, most notably the word trinity. So non-biblical language is not the issue here. No, the real issue is that the word does not describe a particular concept at all, let alone a biblical one. Now, I can understand using a word uh, using a word the meaning of which is unclear as the new brand name for organization. I asked the chairman of one such evangelical organization here in the UK uh, what the name meant, and he replied that the point of choosing a vague name was that they could could fill it in with a meaning of their own choosing. But in systematic theology, it is helpful if words do actually mean things. As missional doesn't, it just sounds vaguely a good thing. But the word missiologist is another matter. Long before the word missional was being bandied around, there were people called missiologists. Missiology is a study of missions. As such, it must always have a a large element of history in it, how missions were done in the past. It also studies missions in the present. Thus, the word means something. A missiologist is a person who studies missions. One can even get a doctorate in the subject, meaning it must be well-defined enough for its study to actually be possible. Missions, we know, but missional, we do not know. 
Great point, uh, Pastor Charmley. Great points worth passing along and always appreciative of your um, contributions here to Fighting for the Faith. All right, moving along. Yeah. By the way, did I mention? I did mention this, but I'll just reiterate the fact that uh, Pastor Charmley will be providing the sermon for today uh, during our sermon review section. And uh, so, you know, in fact, the sermon we're going to be listening to from Pastor Charmley, uh, let me find the name of it. Uh, the name of it is Cleansed by Christ. Cleansed by Christ. That's going to be our sermon review today, so you're not going to want to miss that. So, yeah, I, I figured that would be a, a, a good thing to do since Pastor Charmley was suffering to the point where he was having to yell out uh, goats and monkeys as a stress-relieving technique. Um, <laughs> it's just like, anyway... So, uh, yeah, poor guy. Uh, so, um, moving along here, um, next in line, um, Ed Stetzer, recently on his blog, uh, in fact, yesterday, posted a, a blog post entitled Shallow Small Group, Shallow Small Group. And it's a parody video that's supposed to be, uh, that's supposed to make a point. The problem is, is that, yes, it makes the point, but what it's offering as kind of the counterbalance, the thing that it's supposedly missing in shallow small groups, I don't think is the actual solution itself. Here, listen in. Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business, trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? <laughs> man, that sounds painful. Um, oh, man. Um, I'm not interested in attending a small group study where I have to share my feelings. I don't... I. I don't consider that to be, um, yeah, I, uh, that sounds more like a therapy uh, group rather than a biblical study. You, you understand what I'm saying? Are you just looking for a place to kick it? Network? Maybe get some free grub? No, I, I'm not looking for that either. So, yeah, so here's the deal. I understand that uh, that this parody video is supposed you know, is attacking shallow small groups, but... Uh, what they think is an in-depth small group, I, I, I don't think I want to be a part of that either. Uh. Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with them. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Yeah, see, it, I... Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a fan of shallow small groups, and uh, I'm not interested in going to a small group and doing life together with other people. I don't even know what that phrase means. Do life together and sit around and talk about our emotions and feelings. Um, I would rather cut my arm off with a chainsaw. You know, yeah. Frankly, at shallow small group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term "unpack that thought." We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey, dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth. Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. It wasn't pleasant. There's no pressure here to remember each other's name. What's going on, buddy? Oh, hey, man. How's it going? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, hey, dude. Oh, dude. Captain, what's going on? We know so, you have a name, and that's the important thing. Group discussion? You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Oh, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? Uh, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague. Who wants cake? Come on and get it! 
And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. That's our guarantee to you. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy, and we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. Uh, yeah, okay. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Yeah, he's stretching out his arm to put a tortilla chip in a bowl of salsa. That, that's outreach. Get it? Some people say we're superficial. But hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group. Because when things get too deep, people drown. Won't you join us? Yeah, so there you go. The parody video, uh, Shallow Small Group Bible Study. You can find that on the internet. Uh, Go to YouTube.com and just type in Shallow Small Group Bible Study. That's the name of it. Or you can find it at Ed Stetzer's uh, blog at edstetzer.com for the uh, Wednesday, May 11th. 2011 um, blog post. Yeah, I, I, here's the deal. Um, I am I am not a big fan of small groups, and uh, for many many reasons. In fact, this this parody video parroting what's wrong with small groups actually makes me think that uh, they should be avoided altogether. Um, I'm not a big fan of them. Uh, the, many times, the people leading them have no biblical training, and uh, they're doing a pastoral job without any pastoral training. They're doing a, a a biblical theology job without actually ever having any biblical theological training. And I am not a licensed and clinical marriage and family counselor, nor am I a debt relief counselor or anything of the sort. And so uh, it may not be a wise idea for you to get me in a small group setting and then have somebody unpack their feelings in my presence. I, I, I might give bad advice. You, you understand what I'm saying? Um, I do understand, though, as Christians, we need to mature in our faith. I just am not convinced that this new tool, the small group, is uh, really the right means by which uh, Christians are brought to maturity. Uh, again, it sounds more like a group therapy session to me rather than a study, a serious study of God's Word and theology. Not to say that it can't take place in a small group. I'm sure there are plenty of small groups out there where they actually do good small group studies, and the leaders are qualified to be teaching the Scriptures. They've studied and showed themselves approved. They actually have uh, you know, the right theological doctrinal training to be able to handle God's Word in a public setting like that. You, you understand what I'm saying? So, yeah, but I, I'm not interested in doing life. I, was, I didn't even know what that means. Let's do life together. I, I have friends, and I, I guess that, that when, you, know, when I, you say that I'm spending time with my friends, you know, that could technically be doing life. But I, I don't sit there and t- sit there with my f- dude friends and go, hey, dude, isn't it just so cool that we're doing life together? Yeah, maybe it's just me. All right, <laughs> just one of those things. Yeah, this, the solution here seems worse than the problem. I, I'd, I'd rather be part of the small group study where we didn't talk about anything than part of one that was making me unpack my feelings. Anyway, just saying. Um, <laughs> now, there's a place, again, there's a place for that, but that's the therapy group, not the Bible study. You understand what I'm saying? Anyway. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. We say this popular response in the season of Easter because we believe it happened, that Jesus rose from the dead, and by his death and resurrection, we have the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. But what if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead? That is the topic of a debate between Dr. David Scare of Concordia Theological Seminary and Dr. Robert Price, a fellow for the Jesus Seminar and author of the books The Case Against the Case for Christ and The Reason-Driven Life. This live two-hour radio debate takes place May 15th from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock Eastern Time, and you can listen live at piratechristianradio.com. During the course of the live broadcast, there'll be an opportunity for you to call in live with your questions for Dr. Price or Dr. Scare. Listen to this special Table Talk Radio live presentation, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? May 15th, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, live at piratechristianradio.com. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book, It's entitled, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to 
pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. All right, we're back. Warning, shallow small groups really are a threat, and many of them are really shallow. Even the ones, many of them claim to be deep. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we, well, we, we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. Right now, we are in the middle of a campaign to, uh, to add another 350 crew members. And the reason why we need to do that is, is because, well, in order to uh, ensure that we're going to meet our budget every month, that's how many new crew members we need to add in the month of May. So if you're not already a member of our Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith crew, uh, then, uh, then, well, then by all means, remedy this. And <laughs> it's actually kind of important that you do. The way you do that, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button. What you're doing when you do that is to sign up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, when you join, what we'll do is we'll send, within a few days, we'll send you a link so that you can download our latest book, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. It's a fantastic book. It's the book that, uh, that we're promoting this month uh, here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, uh, and so it's at no extra cost uh, when you join our crew. In fact, as crew members, you get access to each of the books that we'll be publishing as they come available. So we got a new book that we're going to be offering next month. We'll talk about that next month. And so if you're not already a member of our crew, please join our crew. And, of course, if you would like to uh, make a one-time contribution and specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, Uh, we've been talking about the Herald Camping Group that's out there announcing the end of the world. Sadly, uh, like I said, they're heading at Mach 5 towards a, a cliff wall. And uh, this is a, this is audio from a CNN report that was put out, which I found interesting because there's no narrator. Uh, just it, yeah, here, listen it. I would beg to differ that this is some sort of uh, a cult. Now, yeah, this is you know these are these are people who are part of Harold Camping's <clears throat> cult. Um, out there driving around in RVs, and they got shirts on. It says, the end of the world is almost here. It begins on May 21st, 2011, and then they got the website for familyradio.com to get more details. And so there's no narrator in the CNN piece. These are just different people who believe that the end of the world is coming on the 21st, and they're driving around in these RVs warning the world that that the end of the world begins on the 21st. My name is Daryl Keats. Um, I was raised in Newark, New Jersey. I'm currently a member of Project Caravan. We travel to as many states as possible to proclaim the fact that May 21st, 2011 is the day of the Lord's return. Uh, 
no, it's not. We caravan, we see people that give us the thumb. They say thumbs up. We also see people that unfortunately give us the other, the other finger. <laughs> we are on our way to Tampa, Florida to be a part of some sort of traditional festival. We will be distributing as many tracks as possible. Good afternoon, man. Here's the tragedy of it. I mean, look at all the. And we're talking about <laughs> huge sums of money being spent, you know, on RVs, getting the RVs wrapped, the gas that it takes to travel to these events, you know, printing out the tracks. I mean, he, we're talking about human time as far as volunteering effort and stuff like that. And rather than going and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Proclaiming law and gospel, sin and grace. Um, these are people who are out there spending all of this time, all of this money, t- to tell the world that the world's ending on May 21st, 2011, and it's not. The scripture doesn't teach this. <sighs> I'm giving out these tracks today. So God bless you. We expect to meet some of the local people that are helping us. Uh... They're dedicated, as we are, to the, the last days of, um, of this world. My name's Brother Tony. Once Judgment Day hits, May 21st, 2011, there'll be a worldwide earthquake. And what's going to happen is the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then he's taking his people up. Then October 21st, 2011, there'll be dead bodies all over this earth. They're not even going to be buried. I would say a typical day is we're up and about ready for our meeting. Now, I want to point something out here. What has happened here? What has happened? The answer is is that Harold Camping, uh, he's been deceived. This is a satanic deception, and he's deceived all of these people. They are off topic. They are off mission. They are doing, none of this is, is productive at all, at all. They're going to look like fools, and I, I, I sadly, I, I, I predict that some of these folks are going to despair, completely despair on May 22nd. At about 9 o'clock, where we uh, discuss some of the possible places that we will, we will go to reach out to people. Uh, sometimes we come to a city and somebody will yell at us, you know you're wrong. <laughs> We know that you're a cult, but, uh, you know, we just let it wash off of our back like a, like a duck in water, you know? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they can't be reached at this point. They really believe that the world is coming to an end. They cannot be reasoned with biblically even on this. Ah, this is sad. We do have a team leader. His name is Fred. If you plug up the traffic, so much the better. All right. The billboard will be there. Uh, where everybody will get the message. We have about uh, seven of our caravan members who are preparing their RVs so that we'll have all of the materials uh, that we need along the parade route. Anybody got any coffee? No. 10-4. Okay, I'm going to pack some tracks. The people here today are, they're here to party. We understand that. When we get, say of get Judgment Day, they get a little upset. May the 21st, Judgment Day, yeah, right. Most of the people in the costumes 
They just don't want to take the tracks, and we understand that. I'm not selling anything. It's free. God, it's free. God. God's free, baby. There you go. Want to take a track? When you think about it, uh, those tracks have a life of their own. But, uh, people. Uh, yeah, the track headline reads, The end of the world is almost here. Holy God will bring judgment day on May 21st. Ah. Let them fall out of their pocket and they go somewhere else. The tracks uh, end up at their final destination. Uh, I believe they will have accomplished their purpose. Yeah, they end up in the trash. We're not a bunch of crazies. No, you're deceived. Uh, you're, you're sane. We understand that. But you've been deceived by a false teacher who is not rightly handling God's word. We're not a bunch of kooks. We're just like anyone else. So here, there's no narrator, but here on the CNN story, it says this. It says, we asked Project Caravan members what happens if they wake up on May 22nd, 2011. They wouldn't answer that question, This the story reads. Here's why. That would be doubting the Bible, and they cannot do that. Now, one of the things, if you, if you remember, I've pointed out that the, the, there's a false gospel at the heart of all this, which is the thing that should tip you off as to the fact that these folks have not rightly figured out when the end of the world is. Number one, that's not even possible. But the false gospel shows it. And that is, is that you know Harold Camping twists God's word to basically say that if you don't believe that the world is going to end on May 21st, that Judgment Day begins on May 21st, 2011, that if you don't believe that, you cannot be saved. That's not what the Scriptures say. Scriptures say that if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you were brought to repentance and faith in Christ, that you are saved. The Bible does not require you to believe that May 21st, 2011 is the day of the rapture uh, in order to be saved. That's a false gospel. And so, true to their term, because they, they, they believe this false gospel, they cannot even express, begin to express any doubt whatsoever that May 21st, 2011 is the, the day of the rapture. Otherwise, they will not be raptured that day. They, they will be eternally damned. That is the epitome of a false gospel. And so sad, so, so, so sad. Folks, if you know anybody who's caught up in this uh, movement, who is a campingite, who you know, fervently believes that, that the rapture's on May 21st, 2011, let them know now you will be here for them on the 22nd, and, uh, and, uh, and that once this is all passed, tell them not to despair. You will show them from the Scriptures. You will show them from the clear teachings of God's Word how they were deceived, and tell them the truth. Jesus is true, even though Harold Camping has taught false doctrine about Jesus. And so the, the sad thing about all of this is that when this is all over, they're going to look like fools, and they're going to feel betrayed. And they're going to feel betrayed not by Harold Camping. They're going to feel betrayed by Jesus. That's how bad the deception runs. So if you know anybody who's caught up in this, let them know now that you're going to be there for them and then be there to help them the day after. Not to point a finger at them and say, see, I told you so, but to say, no, no, no. You were deceived, and you were deceived by a satanic deception. 
And the satanic deception has as a goal to destroy you and lead you away from the truth. You've been brought away from the truth, but let me preach to you who the truth is, Jesus Christ, and what the real gospel is, the forgiveness of sins won by Christ and his shed blood on the cross. And it's for even the campingites. Even they have not committed a sin to the point at this point that forbids them from the kingdom of God. They need to repent and be forgiven for their false doctrine, which... Thankfully, when May 22nd rolls around, they'll be able to see that it wasn't the truth. But strike while the iron's hot, because camping, should he continue to tarry on this earth, will resharpen his pencil and come up with a new date. No doubt about it, this is not the first time or the second time that he's done this. All right, moving along here. Ah, yeah. (laughs) After being away for a few days, I I had to... uh, Put a Patricia King update in there, you know. That's right. This video, uh, recently published by uh, Patricia King on her xpmedia.com website, is entitled Watch What You Say. Watch What You Say. And I'm going to use this uh, video to introduce you to one of the other, one of the other primary and most and very important uh, biblical hermeneutical principles. And that is, is that Scripture interprets scripture. But uh, so that you can kind of see what's going wrong here, uh, you might want to have your Bible open to Proverbs chapter 18, Proverbs chapter 18, and I'll, I'll explain to you how this all works using Patricia King as our foil, because, you know, she says some crazy things anyway. <clears throat> Here's Patricia King. The words that you speak have the power to create life or to create death. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Okay, now, do you- so apparently you have the ability with the words you speak to create life or create death. And she's quoting from Proverbs chapter 18. Uh, if you have your Bible, flip on over there. It's Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. And here's what the verse says. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Now notice she quoted half of the proverb. Now, here's the question. If you were to put this back in, if you were to apply our three primary rules of biblical interpretation, context, context, and context, would you be able to figure out, you know, what's going on here in such a way that you can undilute what Patricia King just said? The answer, probably not, okay, because many times Proverbs kind of stand on their own. And this is one of those cases where what the proverb says isn't exactly the clearest thing. And so we need something clearer to help clear up in our minds what it is that God the Holy Spirit is conveying here. But let's apply our three biblical rules, our first ones, context, context, context. And what we'll do is we'll look at the immediate context. If you have your Bible, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16 is where I'll begin. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and then examines him. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who live by it will eat its fruits. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor uses entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. Uh, the man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, so I put it back in context, and you, 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 we're having a rough time here. And so here's the question that has to be answered. 
does Proverbs 21, uh, 18.21 teach that the words that you speak have the power to create life and death? Is that what's being communicated here by God the Holy Spirit? Okay. The answer to the question is, well, no, it doesn't. And then immediately you should say, well, how do you know that that's the case? Answer, because of this other very important rule of biblical interpretation, and that is, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Subrule under that, clear passages govern unclear passages. So here in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, we have a passage that's being muddied by a weird interpretation. Now notice that it doesn't say that you have the power to create life and the power to uh, create death by the words that you speak. That's not exactly what it says. It says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruits. What is being spoken of here? Okay. Well, we have to look at some other passages. Okay. So what you do in a situation like this is you look for other passages that deal with the same topic in other parts of the scripture. Okay. Let me give you some. Uh, let me give you some passages that do that. Matthew chapter twelve, verse thirty-six. The words of Jesus. Here's what he says. Uh, twelve thirty-six and thirty-seven. Jesus says, "I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak." For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Interesting, right? Okay. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 13 also gives us some more information. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escape from troubles. Okay, now we're getting a little bit more light. Okay, James chapter 1. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but uh, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This person's religion is worthless. Okay, And then we've got James chapter 3, Okay, even shedding more light on what's going on here. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil." full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring uh, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water." 
Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and self-ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false in the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So here's what you do then. Okay, We've looked at several other passages that deal with the topic that Proverbs 18.21 deals with. And so it, Proverbs 18.21 is not teaching that with your words you create life in your own circumstances or with your words you create curses. This is part of the heresy of the word faith uh, heretics, okay? That uh, this idea that the words you speak create reality. That's actually not what Proverbs 21 teach, or 18.21 teaches. When you put it in context of other passages that deal with this, it's talking about how what we confess is either evil or good. We either just tell the truth or we tell lies. We either confess Christ or we curse others. This, it's not that these create reality. It's that we sin much with our tongues. So you have to look at the other passages to correctly understand what is being spoken of in that proverb. But watch what Patricia King does. What you're going to hear next coming up in just a minute or so is an actual false gospel as a result of this false reading of this text. And depending on what you say, there will be outcomes either for good or for evil. You know, in the first book of Genesis, God said 10 times in the first book, uh, then God said, and it was always creative words of life. He'd say like, let there be light. And there was light. There's creative power in the spoken word. You speak. That's not what Proverbs 21 is saying. Or 1821 is saying. Realms of blessing or of curse into your life. And I just want to encourage you to to speak words of life. You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it's really important for us to get our hearts and our minds aligned with the truth of God's word. Um, over this last uh, year... Now listen to this. This is where you're going to hear a false gospel as a result of this false reading. Or so we've been uh, training our little uh, grandson how to choose, you know, a positive outlook in life. You know, sometimes he gets thinking about things and thinks about the negative ramifications and then he'll question about it or talk about it. And we say, you know what, just think happy thoughts. Think positive things. You know, if you're going to... Think happy thoughts. Think positive things. Uh-huh. You have to make a choice. Choose Choose the positive. Don't think the disaster, but think the creative aspect of something. And so he's been learning that. And um, one day recently, I, I was over visiting uh, the grandchildren. He came up to me and he said, Grandma, you and Grandpa, you deserve to go to heaven. And I said, why is that, sweetheart? And he says, because you are so positive and you always choose positive. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet. But he Yeah, I, I heard that and I thought, oh, that's a false gospel. Here this child thinks that uh, Patricia King and her husband deserve to go to heaven because they're always so positive. I mean, immediately you've got to, you've got to correct this child. And the reason why is because 
The scriptures teach that all of us, including that child, deserve hell. None of us deserves heaven. But that heaven and eternal life are a free gift given to us by the shed blood of Christ, and that we are called to repent of our sins and be forgiven. We're to, we're to literally seek Jesus out for our forgiveness. That's kind of poorly put, but you understand what I'm saying. And so here Patricia King is flattered by what her grandchild said, and I'm alarmed by it because that means this kid does not understand the biblical gospel. So not only has Patricia King deceived herself, she's deceived others, and now her own grandchild and grandchildren are in danger of the fires of hell as a result of her false teaching. He came to realize that a heavenly environment that's full of good things and loveliness is is birthed out of what is positive, our positive outlook. Oh, so apparently heaven is the result of God's positive outlook on things. And you can create your own heaven, too, just by speaking uh, positively. And I think that's a really good thing to ponder. No, it's not. This is flat-out heresy, and that's not what Proverbs 18.21 teaches. What is in your heart right now? Do you know that even if you're facing a, a massive crisis, that there can be something good come out of it? My father used to always say, just think the good things of something. Even, you know, there's a silver lining in every cloud. So even in difficult situations, you can think of the things that could be. Yeah, notice uh, this is like denying reality. This is like sticking your head in the sand. This is uh, this is Kramer on uh, on Seinfeld going serenity now, serenity now, you know, yeah, serenity now, insanity later. Good about it, or the good outcome that that could happen as a result of it. I always say, devil, you'll be sorry you ever tried, and start thinking of the great testimony I'm going to have at the end of the course, and Man. and so if you start speaking that 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 good positive outcome then you'll create a realm of positive influence around you and yet the bible nowhere teaches this in any of the clear passages and this is that's the important thing you cannot take me to a clear passage of scripture that says anything remotely approaching what she just said she's taken an unclear passage and poured into it a theology that is not taught anywhere in the scriptures. The Bible doesn't teach that you create your own positive realm through your positive words and your positive outlook. Instead, we're taught that Jesus Christ brings us through suffering. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, the psalmist writes. The, the here's the here's the reality. We live in a sinful and fallen creation, and there is wickedness that abounds in all directions. And that wickedness visits all of us, and all of us are guilty of producing it as well. The results of our sin has brought misery and suffering upon us and our loved ones. And simply saying, oh, well, I'm going to speak positive things and have a positive outlook isn't going to change that. Instead, we're taught not to basically try to alter reality and turn it into something that isn't through magically speaking words. Instead, we're to, to confess that all of this misery is a result of our sin. Confess that we are guilty of creating it and come to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins. 
and he will bring us through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't lead us around it. He leads us through it. And he sets a table for, you know, the, for us to sit in the presence of our enemies. And yet he brings us through all of that as well. Something to consider. All right, moving along. One more thing we're going to do here before we uh, get to our sermon review, and that is to uh, read the latest piece from Dr. Albert Muller from the albertmuller.com website. Following Jesus while rejecting the Bible? Yet another tragedy in mainline Protestantism. And that's exactly what it is, a tragedy. Dr. Albert Muller writes, he says, Yet another denomination has voted to ordain openly homosexual candidates to its ministry. Yesterday, the Presbyterian Church USA, Presbytery of the Twin Cities in Minnesota, voted to approve a change to the church's constitution that will allow the denomination's 173 presbyteries to ordain persons without regard to sexual orientation. The Twin Cities Presbytery cast the deciding vote in what is now a 33-year effort to remove all restrictions on homosexuals serving in the church's ordained ministry. It became the 87th Presbytery to affirm the action of the church's 209th assembly last summer, authorizing the constitutional change. The action not only concludes over three decades of controversy over the ordination standards, it also reverses actions taken in 1997, 2001, and 2008 when similar efforts failed. In 1996, the denomination restated its ordination requirements to include, quote, fidelity within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman or chastity in singleness. That policy had also required that candidates, quote, refusing to repent of any self-acknowledged practice which the confessions call sin shall not be ordained and or installed as deacons, elders, or ministers of the word and sacrament. The new constitutional section will read, quote, Standards for ordained service reflect the church's desire to submit joyfully to the lordship of Jesus Christ in all aspects of life. The governing body responsible for ordination and or installation shall examine each candidate's calling, gifts, preparation, and suitability for the responsibilities of office. The examination shall include but not be limited to a determination of the candidate's ability and commitment to fulfill all requirements as expressed in the constitutional questions for ordinations and installation. Governing bodies shall be guided by Scripture and the confessions in applying standards to individual candidates. Now, all references to marriage and chastity are gone, along with the language about refusal to repent of sin. The new language speaks instead of submission to the lordship of Christ and being guided by scripture and confessions. In any other context, that language might not seem revolutionary, but in this case, it means the denominations surrender to those pushing for the normalization of homosexuality. Put another way, the church has now decided that fidelity within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman or chastity and singleness is just too restrictive. Grade Parsons, stated clerk uh, of the PCUSA General Assembly, explained the meaning of the change. Quote, clearly what has changed is that persons in a same-gender relationship can be considered for ordination. The gist of our ordination standards is that officers submit to the lordship of Jesus and ordaining bodies, presbyteries for ministers and sessions for elders and deacons, have the responsibility to examine each candidate individually to ensure that all the candidates uh, do so with no blanket judgments. Why now? Parsons suggested that the victory by proponents of the ordination of homosexuals has come because of the exodus of larger conservative congregations from the denomination. 
approximately 100 over the last five years. The fact that many Presbyterians seemed ready to get past this argument, the growing acceptance of homosexuality in the larger culture, and the less controversial wording of this revision, he, along with others, expressed some measure of surprise and relief that the decision was made. He told the New York Times, quote, We've been having this conversation for 33 years, and some people are ready to get to the other side of this decision. Some people are going to celebrate this day because they've worked for it for a long time, and some people will mourn this day because they think it's totally different understanding of Scripture than they have. The Presbyterian Church USA now joins the Episcopal Church US, the United Church of Christ, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in ordaining openly homosexual candidates to the ministry. Both sides in this controversy understand the meaning of the decision. While this action deals specifically with ordination standards, it's really about the larger issue of homosexuality. Most observers expect that the decision uh, the decision to allow same-sex marriages will follow closely. But even beyond the specific issue of homosexuality, the church faced two of the most fundamental questions of Christian theology, the authority of the Bible and the lordship of Christ. In making this change, the church clearly affirms that one may submit to the lordship of Christ without submitting to the clear teachings of Scripture. That is a fundamental error that leaves this denomination now in the implausible position of claiming to affirm the Lordship of Christ while subverting the authority of Scripture. The removal of the constitutional language about marriage and chastity coupled with the removal of the language about repentance from what Scripture identifies as sin effectively means that candidates and presbyteries may defy Scripture while claiming to follow Christ. Clearly, this action could not have happened without this denomination having abandoned any required belief in the full authority, inspiration, and truthfulness of the Bible long ago. This most recent decision sets the stage for the total capitulation of this church to the normalization of homosexuality, an act of open defiance against the Scriptures. Yes, that's true, Dr. Muller. In a church-wide letter to the denomination, PCUSA leaders stated, quote, Reactions to this change will span a wide spectrum. Some will rejoice, others will weep. Those who rejoice will see the changes in action long in coming that makes the PCUSA an inclusive church that recognizes and receives the gifts for ministry of all who feel called to ordained office. Those who weep will consider this change one that compromises biblical authority and acquiesces to present culture. The feelings on both sides run deep. Well, the feelings no doubt run deep, but the injury to this church runs far deeper than feelings. This is yet another tragedy in the sad history of mainline Protestantism's race towards theological disaster. Well put, Dr. Muller. Well put. And that's absolutely the case. Folks, you cannot claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and at every turn impugn God's Word, deny its authority, deny that it's binding and normative on our behavior and our thoughts and on our doctrine and our deeds. You don't get to approach God's Word in a smorgasbord fashion and say, you know what, I I like what it says over here about love, but I don't like what it says over here about homosexuality being an abomination to God. You don't get to pick and choose. In fact, read Scripture. Read about Korah's rebellion. Read about Balaam. Read about those who attacked God's Word and attacked the authority of of God's prophets and what they said and tried to instead ascend themselves to the point of, of contradicting God's Word. And look how things went for them. Not so good. Not so good 
at all. Yeah, unfortunately, the PCUSA here is reenacting Korah's rebellion. And things did not go well for Korah and his rebellion against God and his word. Not well at all. Pray for the folks in the PCUSA that God brings them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins for this abomination that they've committed, along with the Episcopal Church and the ELCA. The reality is, is that this is this is the exactly the kind of decisions that guarantee the long-run destruction of these mainline denominations. Because God ultimately will punish them for this rebellion. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. All right, we are up on our second break. And uh, when we come back, we got a good sermon from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley entitled Cleansed by Christ. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. I have a good sermon for you. And the wonderful thing about this one is it's challenging in a good biblical way. You'll you'll hear what I'm talking about here in a minute. The Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church. Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent in the UK, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. Pastor Charmley will be reading and then preaching on John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. This is not an easy text to preach on. <laughs> This one requires you to have a good, firm understanding of law and gospel and a proper understanding of Christian sanctification so that you can wrestle with that wonderful verse in this passage where Jesus says, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, you're sitting there going, Well, Chris, we've heard you say a million times on your program that somebody's just reducing Jesus to a mere example. Right, I've said that a million times. Maybe a million and one. However, that does not negate the fact that the Bible clearly teaches, and Jesus says even of himself, that some of the things that he's done for us are 
done as an example to us that we should follow. That does not mean if you that there is no proper understanding of Jesus as an example. But if you're going to merely preach Jesus as an example or preach Jesus as an example and exclude the gospel, then you miss the whole point of the example that Jesus has set. And Pastor Charmley here in this sermon wrestles with a difficult, difficult gospel passage, and he does a fine job of correctly preaching and proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, and at the same time proclaiming and giving examples of the therefore of the gospel. Or as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapters 2, Verses 8, 9, and 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I'm going to kill that song. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So, difficult passage to preach on, and Pastor Charmley gives us a good example of preaching the gospel and the correct understanding of the therefore, and gives us a good biblical, exegetical crack at what it means to see Jesus in this passage and the example that he left for us to follow. Again, difficult text, good gospel preaching. Here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley Cleansed by Christ is the name of his sermon. Here we go. Scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 13. John's Gospel, chapter 13. Now this follows Jesus ending his public ministry and moves on, in fact, directly to the night in which he was betrayed. John's Gospel chapter 13 now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and supper being ended the devil having already put it into the heart of of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him Jesus knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had, to, he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he said to Simon Peter, then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example 
that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that scripture must be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was to whom, of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. No one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while, a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. <coughs> Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, The rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. We trust God's blessing to rest on this solemn portion of his most holy word. Okay, you'll notice... <clears throat> One of the good signs of a of a well what's going to be an exegetical sermon is that it begins with a whole section of God's word in context. You're hearing an entire gospel pericope preached at the beginning of the sermon. This is good practice. Good practice. This will key you into the fact that you're hearing God's word in context and what the pastor is going to do next is try to help us better understand what it is that we just read in context, if that pastor's worth his gospel salt, if you know what I mean. And Pastor Charmley, well, he's worth quite a bit of salt. So uh, let's continue now. Our text this morning is found in John's Gospel, chapter 13 and verse 8 in the second half. Of the verse, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. This is a solemn declaration that there is something, but if it is refused, keeps the soul from Jesus forever. If Christ cleansing, if Christ's cleansing work is refused, then you can have no part in Christ. Refuse that part of his work and you lose everything. If you are not cleansed by Christ, if you will not be cleansed by Christ, you cannot have Christ. Now we sing sometimes a hymn that says that God made me for himself to serve him here. And yet what we have in this chapter is God in Christ made man to serve us here. This 13th chapter, particularly the first 17 verses, gives us Jesus as the servant king, the one who is our Lord and our teacher, serving us, the one who is our God, serving us. We have this amazing, amazing fact here of God taking upon himself the very nature of a slave and doing the work of a slave. For indeed, God was made man in Jesus to serve us. This is the beginning of the private teaching. This great block in John's Gospel where we have these long discourses, or perhaps we should say this long discourse where Jesus is saying farewell to the disciples in the upper room, talking to his own. And verse 1 of this chapter is introduction really, that Jesus knew his hour had come that he should depart from this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this refers to the disciples, those who had believed on his name, those who followed him, who confessed him as their Lord and their teacher. The hour had come, and now he gives this active parable, really, as he removes his outer garment, his robe, Essentially equivalent to a modern, a modern man in a suit taking his jacket off. And he wraps a towel around himself in the manner that a waiter would. In fact there is a, an account given of the mad Roman Emperor Caligula who ordered uh, senators to appear before him with towels wrapped around their clothes like slaves, and the whole point of Caligula doing that was to humiliate the senators. But Jesus willingly humbles himself for us. And so we have first of all a cleansing, the cleansing of the feet. Secondly we have Peter's change of mind, and thirdly we have the claims of love set out by Jesus. So first we have the cleansing of the feet. 
here is this great act of humility and love. First of all, it's an act of humility. According to Jewish tradition, to Jewish law, no Jewish man, whatever his status, could be compelled to wash the feet of another. No Jewish man could be compelled to wash the feet of another. Only a non-Jewish slave, a, a heathen slave, could be compelled to wash somebody's feet. And it was said that a, a disciple, one of the works the disciple was not asked to do for his master, was to wash his feet. Obviously in this, uh, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, men wore sandals. And it, of course it would be very dusty, so feet tended to get all over dust. And so before a meal, you would wash the feet of the guests. Somebody would come and wash their feet, or they would wash their own feet. And of course among the poor, who didn't have slaves, you'd wash their own feet. Or, a man's wife might wash his feet, or his children might wash his feet. But this was the work, if it was done by a man, it was done by a foreign slave. But Jesus, who is the Master and the Lord, girds himself with a towel. He takes the, the garments of a slave, and he does the work of a slave. He takes the basin of water, the cup that will be with it, and pours water over the disciples' feet and dries the feet with a towel. He humbled himself. Nobody compelled him to this. He freely chose to do it. And he did it out of love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the word end there also carries connotations of loving them completely. Loving them, to use the word that's found in Hebrews, loving them to the uttermost. Loving them to the, the very depth that love could go. He loved them, and this is a sign of that love, that he would clean their feet. He would wash their feet, because he loved them. And all this, of course, is a picture of his mission, his work on the earth. He humbled himself, says the Apostle Paul in that wonderful passage in Philippians chapter 2. It's one that many, many people think is an, an ancient Christian hymn. And he says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross he laid aside his outer garment as he would soon lay down his life for these same people who are called his own. For his own he laid down his life. And he laid aside his garment as a picture that he will lay aside his life, that he will give up everything for them. He humbled himself for them. 
This is the Messiah after all, doing a servant's work. This is the one who is hailed as the King of Israel. Just in the previous chapter, the crowds greeting him on Palm Sunday cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And when Jesus fulfills prophecy on the donkey, he is fulfilling the words that say, Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's cult. And yet this King is the King who lays aside his majesty and washes his servant's feet. This is God beyond all praising, beyond all glory, washing the feet of sinful men as a picture of the fact that he is coming to lay down his life to cleanse sinful men of their sins. Okay, notice here. Pastor Charmley begins in the gospel, Christ and him crucified for our sins. And he takes this passage and he gives us another clear passage to help us better understand this passage, Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being obedient even to death on a cross. Notice how this is artfully done. He's not just... He's, he's not taking this sermon and just moralizing. Oh, you need to be washing people's feet. Get out there and be a servant. No, he preaches the gospel and points out that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, humbly serves us. And that service goes to the cross for us. He cleanses the feet of his servants, and he cleanses you and me by his shed blood on the cross. He laid down his life for his people. And this is a great demonstration of the love of God. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how we know what love is. Because we see it manifested in Jesus. This is how we know what love really looks like. This is love. In this is love. That he humbled himself for us. To cleanse us from our sins. And so we come to our text. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If he does not do the work that he has come to do for you, then you have no part in his work. And so we come to Peter's change of mind. It's probable that Peter would have been the first disciple that Jesus came to, which explains his horror. Because if he'd seen other disciples submit to it, he would have been probably a little bit more willing to have his feet washed by Jesus. But he says, no, you shall never wash my feet. It sounds pious, doesn't it? It sounds a pious thing to say, Lord, you will never do this for me. I will never let you suffer for me. I will never let you be humbled for me. 
I will never let you humble yourself for me. It sounds very pious. And yet it is the logic of damnation. The logic of the Pharisees, not the logic of Christ. The logic of Christ is, I must do this to save you. It's to completely misunderstand what Jesus came to do. To say, Lord, you will never humble yourself for me. There are those who would say, who do say them, the Muslims say this, the Jews say this. It is not fitting for a prophet to be crucified. It is not fitting for Jesus to die. Not in the eyes of man. That's the, the, the misplaced piety of Peter that says, Lord, this will never be. Because we cannot cleanse ourselves. It sounds pious, but it's a failure to see the great need that we have to be cleansed. It's a failure to see what we are. That we are sinners. And a failure to understand who God is. That God is the one before whom the angels veil their faces in the, in the vision of Isaiah. And they veil their feet. Because they cannot look upon the holiness of God, though they are the seraphim, the bright, burning, fl pure flames of fire. They must hide their faces, they cannot look upon him. They must hide their feet, because they are so far below him. It's the angels that know, know sin, know defilement whose feet never touch the ground because they fly, if the angels must veil their feet before him, what are we? What are we? Angels perhaps may look upon him. But how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim before that Holy One appear, and on my naked spirit bear the, the uncreated being? How can I come before his presence? But if a man doesn't look beyond his superficial deeds, or doesn't understand what the holiness of God is, and I would venture to say that Islam does not, Then of course, a man may say, Oh Lord, this shall never be. But you see, we need to be cleansed. You must be cleansed. If I do not wash you, says Jesus, you have no part in me. You don't understand, Peter. You have to be clean. You have to be washed. And if you're not washed, you are lost forevermore. We cannot cleanse ourselves. And yet the word is this, there is, as has been said, no holiness, no heaven. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Nobody. Unless you are perfect, even as God himself is perfect, you shall never see his face. 
unless you have a perfect, perfect life, you shall never come before him. One sin is enough to keep you from heaven. No holiness, no heaven. And yet, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I mean, you and I, we have not lived up to our own personal standards. Far less God's standards. It amazes me that so many people seem to think, well, they say, oh, I'm sure God will let me in. I'm sure I'm good enough. So many people who I've spoken to on the streets, who I've spoken to about the gospel, I say, well, I'm sure God, I'm sure I'm good enough. But God will accept me. Well, are you good enough for your own standards? Do you live up to your own standards? Well, no. Well, do you think God's standards are lower than yours? Of course not. God's standards are not lower than yours. God's standards are infinitely higher. Be holy, says God, even as I am holy. Be perfect, even as I am perfect. And we are not. And therefore we need to be cleaned. We need to be cleaned. Let not conscience make you linger, as the hymn writer. Nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. See, there are two barriers to people coming to Jesus for cleansing. The first of them is the barrier of the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, I am good enough. I'm good enough, says the Pharisee. I give tithes of all I possess. The Pharisee may say, I, the modern day Pharisee, where we have no set rule of tithing, but the, the encouragement is, is to give what the, as the Lord makes you willing. And as you are able, so there are some who give far and above the tithe. Far and above 10% of their income. And so the modern Pharisee says, well I give 25%. And I'm there whenever the church doors open. And I'm a good parent. And I manage my money well. And I manage my time well. What do I need cleansing for? What have I done wrong? I do everything well. And says, as an old, old clergyman I remember years ago, saying in jest from the pulpit, his theme tune is, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're as perfect as I. That's the Pharisee. His problem is he can't see that he needs cleansing. That even his best works. And we acknowledge that all of those are good things. All of those are things that he's a right to do. But they won't get you to heaven. Because God desires truth in the inward parts. Because Christ says, look at the Sermon on the Mount. Christ says the standard is internal. Got to pause here again. I want to point something out. Notice what he's doing. Now, he preaches the gospel here brilliantly, 
Now he's taking out the merits of good works so that you don't think that when you get to the part where Jesus says, I do this as an example for you to follow, that somehow by following Jesus' example, that you're meriting something from God. Oh, oh look at the good works that I'm doing. <laughs> See, Jesus said to follow my example. I'm doing it. I must be earning brownie points from God. Pastor Charmley is disavowing everybody of that false doctrine. So, I mean, this is brilliantly done. He begins in Christ and him crucified for our sins and the fact that nobody can stand before him without being cleansed by his blood. And then he preaches the the law in such a way to take out the merits of good works so that you don't think so that you don't think that you're somehow made righteous or that God is somehow pleased with you because of your good works. You know, so he's taking away the meritorious ideas of the false doctrine that goes with the Pharisees. Again, brilliantly done. Society deems her if you do anything, however good, for your own glory, you have departed from God. It was said of uh, Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer who did many good works. You know, he lived as a peasant, he worked on the land, but he never paid off his gambling debts. Why not? Because that was a quiet little thing that uh, wasn't so spectacular and nobody noticed. See, he did his good works to be seen of men. Now, they were good works, but they were directed to his own glory and praise. And that was the flaw. He had many good things, Tolstoy. But the flaw was that so many of them were for his own glory. And that can be the Pharisee's problem. He's looking to be glorified himself. And he has come short of the Sermon on the Mount. His heart is not pure. His motives are not pure. Oh, he is the man who would never commit adultery. But he will allow himself that lustful look. But nobody knows about that. But God knows. God knows the sin. God knows the covetousness in the heart. That's the snare of the Pharisee. But then there's the snare of the publican. The publican's snare is this, that he knows he's a sinner. And he knows the holiness of God and therefore he dare not approach the Lord Jesus. He dare not come for cleansing because he thinks of his conscience smites him. Unlike the man the Hemorrhagia is speaking of. He thinks of fitness and says, I am not fit, I cannot come before this great and powerful God. No, you cannot. You cannot come before God. But God has come down to you in Jesus Christ. And God invites you to come. He offers a full cleansing from sin. And only the sinner can come to be cleansed. Only if you come acknowledging your sin can you be cleansed. But if you say, I am such a vile sinner, I do not know that I can come. The answer is this. It is sinners who are invited to the cross. It is sinners who are invited to Jesus Christ. It is to sinners he speaks. And for sinners he died. Don't think your sin is too terrible for him. Because he invites all sins. 
the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. He, he is the one as we sing Mr. Wesley's great hymn, His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. The Pharisee needs to know his sin. The publican needs to know that Jesus ready stands to save him filled with mercy, love and power. That Jesus is loving and merciful and invites you to come. <laughs> uh, this is uh, We are three quarters of the way through the sermon. And, I mean, ha, huh, this is just chock full of Jesus. This is brilliant, great. Oh, see, see the difference? See the, I mean, this, I mean, it begins with a clear section of God's word in context. It proclaims Christ and him crucified for our sins, for the self-righteous and those who were even aware of their sins to come and be cleansed by Christ, takes away any of this meritorious nonsense. By the way, there's a great passage of Scripture that I would like to read out of context for you. And you're going, you're going to read a verse out of context? Yeah, I, I am. Go put it back in context and see, though, if the point that I'm making isn't the exact same point that I make You know, in Scripture. The Apostle Paul, preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill, says to them, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. The point being this. Paul here is talking about how people create idols and stuff like that and serve them. He says, but God doesn't need anything from humans. One of the reasons why we have that bumper that says, you know, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor needs them is that your good works are not for God. God doesn't need anything from you. Instead, the Apostle Paul says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives us life and his word, and he cleanses us of our sins. Everything we need is given to us. This is the gospel. And watch what Pastor Charmley does here. He then sticks to the text and does what the text does and teaches. He takes us to the next thing about how then shall we live toward our neighbor as a result of this good news, knowing that it's not God who needs our good works, but it's our neighbor who needs them. Watch what he does. So we come to the claims of love. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. The first claim of Jesus' love is this. If he has so loved you, as to lay down his life for your sins, if he has so loved sins, the first claim of love is this, that we should come to him. And we should come freely because his love invites us. Because his grace invites us. That is the first claim of love. He shows us what love is. See, all human love is polluted and marred at certain points. It is flawed because we're all sinners. All human love has a certain amount of sin mixed with it. There's a certain amount of selfishness that comes in to all human love. And the less 
sanctified by God love is, the more selfish it becomes. Why is it that uh, the divorce rates are so high? Why is it that you have people who do not want to get married but uh, shack up and live as though married? Why is it? Because marriage is commitment. It involves a solemn oath of commitment one to another. We saw that at the royal wedding. We heard that commitment as long as you both shall live until death shall you part. You see the commitment and selfishness commits to no one but self. But love commits to other people. Now all human love is an element of committing of selfishness, an element of self involved. But the love of Christ has no self at all. He emptied himself. That's what the word he humbled himself in Philippians 2 literally means in the Greek he emptied himself, he poured himself out. He made himself of no reputation, says the King James. And the, the idea is this, that there was nothing of self in Jesus. No self-glory thought of. But everything he did, he did for other people. He is for us. We have here God. God doing the work of a slave for man. As one of the commentators says, this is love. If God does the work of a slave for sinful man, this is love. So he shows us what love is. We should not fully really understand love without Jesus. But, he also shows us that love as an example for Christians. Nobody who is not a Christian can even understand the, the nature of Christ's love as an example. I mean, they can see it. You can see that this is love beyond imagination. Now notice, Jesus himself in this text said that he did this as an example. Pastor Charmley is not doing violence with the text, nor is he moralizing. He's doing sound expository work properly understanding law and gospel, convicting people of their sin. And now, here, this is all the therefore, and the text itself says that Jesus did this as an example. So he's not shying away from Jesus' words, nor is he trying to blunt them or shunt them or do anything with them, but faithfully tell us what this means. Anybody can. Here's a man who so loved us that he died for us. Because there was no other way to deal with our sin, our wickedness, he took it upon himself and died. He, who is God beyond all praising, as we sing in that wonderful hymn, all for love's sake, became a man. He who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became as poor. He who is God died for sinners. That's love. And it sets Christians an example. 
of a life of loving, humble service. The Christian life is a life of loving, humble service to others in all that we do. It's not a matter of doing what Tolstoy did and trying to find some massive display of love, some amazing thing that all the world will wonder at. If you do that, there's a lot of self in it. Now the men who have done enormous works of love that the world wanders at, George Mueller and the orphans in Bristol, Charles Spurgeon and orphans, Mueller didn't set out to do something amazing, Mueller set out to care for orphans. William Booth didn't set out to do something amazing when he started the Salvation Army, he set out to save sinners and to help the poor. The men who have done great things for God set out simply trying to do loving things. Now Booth, Booth was a minister. He was called to be a pastor and an evangelist. Mueller was a wealthy man who was called to look after orphans and also to be a minister. But you know we all have callings. Most of us are more than one. You may be called to be a parent, a grandparent. You have a calling in the world, a job that you do. You are called to be that. You are called in all manner of human relationships to live in selfless, humble love toward others. You are called to be a child and to be selfless and humble. Called to be a, a brother or a sister and to be selfless and humble. The Christian is called to selfless, humble love in the common things of life. In the things that the world will never look at. And the world will never placard before all men. To be humble. I had a, a great aunt who died several years ago now, who was a midwife. That was her calling in life. She was called to be a midwife. And by the end of her, at the end of her career she was uh, so loved, so loved by the other midwives, by the other hospital staff, that they, they sent to the, the New Year's Honours list, they sent to the, yeah, to the palace and said, Miss Bartlett should be honoured by the nation for what she had done. She did not set out to do anything great. She didn't have some great dream, but she had a word from God. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it on your mind. She had the example of the Lord Jesus, an example of selfless love. And you know, they, they gave her they gave her a medal, an MBE. They gave her honours, named a hospital ward after her. And you know, until her final illness, where she could be found on a Sunday night, in the kitchen, serving tea and coffee to the Lord's people. 
a woman who had a hospital ward named after her, had a medal. All of it had come to her, you see, unsought. The honour, she was not in it for the honour. She was in it because she loved people. And because she loved the Lord Jesus. And so she saw the Lord Jesus putting himself out for others, and so she put herself out. She worked, you know, every Christmas day when she was a midwife. Because she said, I am unmarried. And there are women here who are married. Who have families of their own. This hospital, this ward is my family. I, I spend, she didn't see it as a sacrifice even, spending Christmas on the ward. She said, this is my family. I spend Christmas with my family. And one of you younger women, she was head of the department, remember? One of you, you will spend Christmas with your family. That's the spirit of Jesus Christ. She was a woman who loved Christ, who read her Bible. One of the old Plymouth brethren, and it said of them, they love their Bibles. They love their Bibles. She knew the scriptures. And she knew them as the place where she found the Lord Jesus. See, she's an example to us. Not because she was somebody great who was honoured by the world, but because she was somebody great who loved Jesus Christ. She loved much because she was loved much. And you and I are loved by that same Lord Jesus. We have the same Lord. Oh, we will probably not be honoured as she was honoured by the world, but we... No, I, I didn't know about half of this stuff until the funeral. As far as I knew, she was just my, my great-aunt who'd worked in the hospital. It was only at the funeral I, I came to understand how she'd been honoured because she was so humble. Now you and I, we shall not be so honoured by the world. We do not want to be so honoured by the world. We want to be like her and say, I don't seek my own but the things that are Christ's. The Apostle Paul did not travel through the known world in his day, he travelled around the Mediterranean to be honoured by men, he travelled to make Christ known. And you and I, if we, if we look at the Lord Jesus, if we seek in humble love to serve one another, well, says the Lord Jesus in the chapter that we read, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And by this shall we know, shall we show that love, if we serve one another in humble love. All for the glory of Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. All for Christ's sake. So we see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom, though he was rich, Yet for our sakes he became poor. He humbled himself for us, even to death. And he did this to cleanse us from our sin. And if we are not cleansed from our sin, we have no part in him. He, he is first. First he is the saviour before he can be the exemplar. First he must be your lord and your saviour. The one you trust in to save you before he can be the example you look to to guide you. 
We need cleansing. We all of us need cleansing to come to that cleansing blood. And we are called all to trust in him. And to follow him. And to learn from him what it is to live. And to love. And to serve. He has served us. That is the first point that we must have. Christ has served us. Christ is serving us. No, he is the eternal son of God. In and of himself. But he is Christ, the Messiah, for us. He would not be the Messiah if it were not for us. He would not be Jesus if it was not for us. He is God's saviour for us. He has served us. Are we looking for him? Are we looking to him? Are we saved by him? Have you been cleansed by him? Have you a part in him? Part with him? And have you a part in that blessed life of service that Christ calls us all to? For he loved us and gave himself for us. And so to him we ourselves must give. Amen. Amen. Yep, I don't think I can add much more to that. Good works that flow from the forgiveness of our sins. That we are made new in Christ by his shed blood on the cross for us. And we're brought to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins. From that, then, you are set free from bondage to sin, to death, and to the devil, and are free to love God and love and serve your neighbor. Same pattern we saw in Ephesians chapter 2. Same pattern here. Well said, well spoken. And thank you again, Pastor Charmley, for placarding Christ and him crucified for our sins. There's just no difference. I, they, well, they, no, there's not no difference. There's no comparison. There is no comparison between a pastor who's doing his biblical job and one who refuses to do his job. The difference is as stark as night is from day, as darkness is from light, as truth is from error. And over and over again, one of the reasons why we do the sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith is so that you can finally see and understand just how stark that difference is and what is at stake. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. Right now we are in the middle of a drive. We need 350 new crew members. If you're not a member of our crew yet, well, we truly do need your help in order to continue to make our budget because we're not making it right now. And so if you're not a crew member, head on over to FightingForTheFaith.com and join our crew. $6.95 a month, that's not a lot of money, but that, that money means a lot as we spread that across many listeners so that we can make our budget month after month and, uh, and continue to grow and expand our reach. You know, the, it, one of the reasons why our expenses keep going up is because the number of listeners keeps going up. And I'm thankful that more and more people are listening to this program and hearing good biblical discernment, and hearing the gospel for them, even if they've been a Christian their entire lives. The good news is for them. However, we can't keep doing what we're doing unless we can pay our bills. And currently, well, we're coming short, and so you know, I'm appealing to you to uh, 
help remedy that situation. If you don't already uh, support us financially, go to the website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on either the, the, the button that says donate or the one that says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew, what we'll do is we'll send you a link to download our latest book, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. You'll I I assure you that you'll find this book to be very comforting and very helpful in pointing us to Jesus Christ and what he has done and suffered for our salvation. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, do that by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till next, well, tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.